Hi, I'm Nathan Ryder, and welcome to the Viber Survivors podcast, where I talk to PhD graduates about their research, their Viber, and life after the PhD. This is episode 22, and today I'm talking with Dr. Richard Hinchcliffe, PhD graduate of the University of Central Lancashire. Richard's research was on melancholia in the works of Kurt Vonnegut. I talked to him about his research, his fibre, and his job as head of PGR development at the University of Liverpool. Hi Richard, it's very good to, to be able to talk to you today. Can we start by you telling us a little bit about your research and how you came to do it? Right, my uh, research was on the subject of melancholia within the novels of Kurt Vonnegut and um, for melancholia we mean from a cultural aspect um, from a literary aspect it was all about a kind of sensibility that a reader might um, experience and that a reader might deduce from um, the sort of irony and the kind of um, subject matter that um, the novels deal with, and in fact the um, the protagonists of the um, of the novels themselves, what kind of people they were, the kind of things that they um, suffered from, and so on. And I was interested in this because. Um, uh, it's one of those things in culture and literary studies that is um, is sort of deep as opposed to things that are surface. So when we talk about deep things, we mean things that go deep down into history uh, in particular, but also with melancholia, as you can imagine, they go deep down into people's minds and into their psyches as well. So it, it was... It was kind of a um, subject area to really get your teeth into. And I think I was one of the first people to really start to look at this in in the um, literary field using um, modern um, theoretical uh, approaches to it. I mean, obviously, I wasn't the first person to write about melancholia. There is a very good arguments say that people have been writing, all writing is about melancholia, um, in that melancholia is, um, could be termed as being the human condition, and then you do stuff in order to ameliorate it. For all of those reasons, it, it was um, it was interesting to do, and Kurt Vonnegut was, was somebody who was, uh, was a great writer, and I, I really enjoyed his writing. It seemed to be full of that kind of stuff, and every time I tried to apply, that I applied any kind of theories or ideas that I came up with, I readily found loads and loads of sources within Vonnegut's novels for uh, melancholia, and um, it it just sort of all stemmed from that. How do you do research in your area? Then you mentioned then like having a theory and looking through Vonnegut's (laughs) novels. Were you reliant on what other people had written about uh, his novels as a kind of a, a way into that or were you purely looking at the text and drawing stuff out from that? Well you do both <coughs> yeah. of course so there was quite a lot of 
there's quite there's quite a bit of um, writing on Vonnegut and um, how his particular use of irony and humour and so on was a particularly um, unique kind of way of doing things for 20th century American writers. But he, he was, of course, part of a whole group of American writers like um, uh, Joseph Heller, Ken Kesey, and so on, and they were all producing the same kind of sensibility, sentiment in relation to the breakdowns that they saw in society and um, the kind of classical (coughs) problems that were happening. All of those writers were termed um, um, post-war writers. So, uh, and in particular, they would have, um, they had experiences during the war as writers, which obviously came out in their writing. Yeah. What I what I tried to do in my thesis was was not have any connection between Vonnegut's life experience and the text that he created. So everything was done on the base basis of the text, yeah. not on attributing the you know yeah. Vonnegut wrote this because you know he felt he felt depressed. That's yeah. not the basis of it. The basis of it is is creativity mm-hmm. which was which was one of those things that was fascinating about looking at melancholia because melancholia is um, the way out of melancholia is to be creative and uh, melancholia itself once it, it can become creative um, and, and you can see this in manic depressive kind of phases mm. for the more extreme and more chemically imbalanced individuals but in general anyway melancholia um, kind of works like that it is it is quite creative it's quite a creative kind of illness to have I'm not suggesting that depression is a creative illness to have God knows it's incredibly debilitating but if you can um romanticize it if you like then you're thinking about it deeply and if you think about it deeply then often these are ways out mm-hmm. of melancholia and this was what was so interesting about doing the research is that you came coming you would come across this time and time again from historical writers of um, pre-christian historical writers would be talking about this in terms of the way that you would meditate religious and um, uh, seer-like hermits and so on would go off into the desert they would meditate on the futility of life and um, so on and then lo and behold they would have some sort of um, uh, creative revelation and feel elated and you know this would be a transformative experience you come across that time and time again it's in the bible it's jesus's 40 days and 40 nights in the desert being tempted by the devil and so on and these are the kind of structures and things that you see within um all kinds of novels and um, in, in what i think was in novel in vonnegut's in particular so how did you end up doing well how did you end up doing a phd in this area how did how did you end up doing a phd at all <coughs> Well, I didn't go to um, university straight from school, mm-hmm. so I um, I went to a secondary modern school where they didn't do O levels, and you were it was a country school, and they did um, CSEs as we call. So I, I didn't get any of 
um, of those kind of qualifications. I went to technical college to try and get some A-levels, but I spent most of my time there um, organising the student union and, and, and being involved in um, nefarious activities as I experimented with, with life as sort of adolescents and you know, late adolescents tend to do. So um, I, that's what I, that's why I kind of wasted that that opportunity there for, um, for doing. Oh, I nevertheless received some sort of education anyway. And then I ended up working in a series of bookshops and dead end jobs. And I ended up working with my father at um, a railway museum. And I, I worked in that industry for 10 years, nine years altogether. And I was, uh, so I had a career there in the railway industry, railway heritage industry. And um, that, that was fascinating in itself. But all the time people said, you know, well, when you went to university, and I, I never had been to university, but people thought that I had. So uh, then I, I had this moment where, some, where I pointed something out to somebody who then immediately pointed out to me that I was fundamentally wrong in my assumptions. And um, it made me realize that I needed to go to university. So I got the necessary adult qualifications to go to university. And I applied to do um, literature and organization studies, because I was interested in that. And then I got a, um, a first class honors degree. I gave up, obviously, the railway heritage industry. Got a first class honors degree. Went on to, loved it, loved doing all of that. Felt got a real kick out of that achievement and went on to do um, an MA in contemporary literary studies uh, at Lancaster and then found um, that I needed to get a job of some description so I went and did a teaching qualification and while I was doing the PGCE Catherine and I my wife and I were in the business of having children as well so I had I did a PGCE and then um, I applied to do a PhD at Central Lancashire, which was where I live in Preston. I had a very good supervisor um, there who was also a, uh, a friend and um, colleague. And I, uh, I ended up, before I actually had a PhD position, I was teaching in the department, not just there, but also at uh, Edge Hill University. Okay. So all of my research training, when I finally did get a um, funding to do the PhD, all my training was based around having to teach um, the, um, the subject that I probably only read up on 24 hours previous to right. when I had to deliver the, uh, deliver the session. So that was... Uh, that was how I did it, and that was how I did my PhD. And then we had more. Uh, I had two children. We have two children all together, and I had to suspend while we were having children because I didn't have any money. I had to take part-time jobs, well, full-time jobs, and suspend my PhD. My PhD, excuse me. So it was um, uh, a kind of um, an interesting way to do a PhD. It was kind of a combination of full-time and part-time whilst also sometimes um, doing a full-time academic job okay. um, so it was extremely intensive and um, um, there, were, there weren't many holidays 
and my wife also, um, uh, she um, changed her career whilst I was changing mine at the same time, and we were having children. Uh, and then it came to me doing my Viva, I suppose. Yeah. Well, before that, I just wanted to ask, because uh, I think you might be the first person I've had on the podcast who had to suspend their studies at some point. So I'm just curious, like, how did... Obviously, your PhD then took a longer time to, to yeah. complete, but how did it how did it impact on, I guess, the... Uh, I was going to say the day-to-day progress, but the in terms of did you lose traction at certain points, or was it just a, were you able to put things down and then come back to it? What, what was your experience like? Whichever subject area you're in, if you're suspended as a result of personal circumstances and, uh, and so on, you... You can't just put your research down and then forget about it. Mm. You carry on reading about it. You might not be able to use the library or um, the facilities of the university, but you, you know you've still got books and your work around and and so on. And you you might not have time to do any actual work, but you're certainly thinking about it and reading about it. And that that helped, I think, to reflect on what it was that I was doing and how I was doing it. <coughs> It certainly, um, I would have preferred to have gone straight through, yeah. but um, you have to regard it as being a positive thing. Obviously, having children was a positive thing. Yeah, so, sure. So that was helpful. Yeah. How long in total then did do you think your PhD took? Was it? I think it was five years altogether. Okay. But um, so, um, but with a year off uh, through suspension. So I suspended twice. Um, in order to get a get a job and do yeah. some work and get earn some money, basically, yeah. become a scenario. Yeah. So towards the end of those five years, then you submitted, and and the vibe started to roll around. So when yes, I had a, I had a window of opportunity where I had so many teaching commitments. Uh, again, in order to eat um, earn money. Uh, and by this time, I was doing something like 21 hours teaching a week whilst completing my, <coughs> my PhD. And I had a, a window of opportunity of a morning where I could print off my PhD and uh, and do the bureaucratic thing of, handing, of submitting it, handing it in, signing the papers and, and so on. And I did that um, in a, a, a rush. And um, I, I forgot to include the conclusion. <laughs> so I printed it all off, and I sent it to be draft bound, and um, forgot the conclusion. And I had to ask the um, examiners if it was okay to uh, uh, send the conclusion along later. It was a bit embarrassing, but um, it was only ten. It was only well less than that, five pages, I think. The conclusion. Right. <laughs> but that was okay. Yeah. Well, that's good. So. On the um, on the run up to the Viva, then what sort of things did you do to prepare? Because obviously, like you've described, you were very busy with with everything else. So, yeah. so how did you manage that aspect? Um, I had um, uh, maybe a couple of meetings with my supervisor. We certainly discussed who should um, uh, be the external examiner didn't discuss who was going to be the internal examiner. The internal examiner eventually came out to be um, uh, Heidi McPherson, who is, uh, she um, wrote on Canadian and uh, North American literature. She was very good. Uh, and the external came from um, Royal Holloway. And, uh, I had a uh, mock viva with my um, mm-hmm. supervisor 
Although I don't think I knew that it was a rotten vibe. It was just about the kind of questions that are yeah. likely to be asked. He'd never supervised anybody through to um, Viber before. Okay. So um, it was new for him too. And he was in the Viber. Um, okay. So because he needed that as an experience to know what a Viber was like. Um, mm -hmm. Did you um, did you do anything like uh, annotating your thesis or looking at the literature again and moving up to the Viber? Or I, read, I read the thesis before, um, again, before... Yeah. Um, before the vibe, yeah. yeah. Um, not the night before. Um, although did I? did I? I think I probably did. I think I probably leafed through it the night before, but I had read it the week previously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was aware of where um, it had weaknesses and, yeah. and so on. In terms of, yeah, you mentioned the mock vibe, which I guess you said in, in retrospect it was a mock vibe, but going into it, you. you maybe weren't thinking of well, it in no, those it terms. it was just a meeting with my yeah. supervisor, yeah. Do you, what sort of, I'm guessing it had it had an impact because you remember having it and and so on, so, but did it uh, change your perception about what the Viva questions might be like or what, or what the Viva might be like? No, I mean, knowing now what I know about Vivas, actually, I think I was quite, both well informed and you know, my expectations were reasonably accurate in terms of what I was what I was going to go into, uh, and um, uh, I the the kind of preparation work was really about having my brain being agile enough in order mm. to answer the questions, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, and so. Well, then going on to the day, um, mm. <laughs> what was your brain agile enough? Well, there's uh, one thing that I've forgotten to tell you is yeah. that um, uh, one of the things that I, I also managed to have time to do was to occasionally play football in the gym. Okay. And um, uh, about um, three weeks previous to the, um, the Viva, I was playing football in the gym and uh, I broke my leg. <laughs> right. And uh, so my leg was um, encased in plaster up to um, up to my hip, and I was on crutches. And uh, um, so this wasn't ideal preparation, really. No. Like getting no. around was extremely difficult. And um, I um, hopped to the room which had been allocated for the um, Viva, room which I'd never been in before. And because at Central Lancashire, they like to pack in their students, you know. So the room was entirely, they had furniture, you know, it was from, you couldn't move in the room for furniture. There were chairs and tables <laughs> and everything. And, right. and I had great difficulty in getting to some sort of spot where I thought would be a useful place to have, have the vibe. And once I was there, I was the first to arrive in the room. And once I was there, of course, I wasn't going to move, seeing as I had this stupid... Um, plaster on my on my leg so I sat down and then I realized that there were two entrances to the room and um, I just hoped that um, you know it was going to be okay I, it turned out that it was okay but then my um, the uh, um, examiners arrived and they arrived through the door that I came in and they they equally even though they were able-bodied <laughs> they also had difficulty getting to where I was right. laid up with my leg. Right. They made a mistake, 
and I say this in retrospect, subsequently I realise in retrospect they made a mistake because as they came through the door, they um, they told me that I had passed the um, passed the minor, and they just hoped for having a really nice discussion. Okay. That's an error. You shouldn't do that. Okay. The British Psychological Society have actually um, done some research <laughs> on this. And their advice is that you should not tell the candidate that they've passed. That's interesting. Well, maybe we'll come back to that. Anyway. Yeah. So, so you were told that you had passed. Well, what what, what had was passed, the Bible yeah. like then? Well, it was. It started off very good on that basis, as you can imagine. <laughs> you know, oh, phew, thank goodness for that. You know, uh, and uh, you know, and I, you never really know how well how because it doesn't matter what feedback you get. In academia, not many people will say to you, your work's really good, you know. <laughs> Nobody ever does that. No. Because no, they don't. They, you know, the negativity of the scientific method basically has sort of gone all the way through academia to the point where you know, anything positive has to be eradicated because it can't possibly be right. <laughs> so... <laughs> So um, uh, uh, the idea then that um, you know you you don't know what the quality of your own work really is, but it's at that moment that you get a realization that it was good enough. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I'd often say to my supervisor, well, I know after two years of supervision, I said to my supervisor, um, look, I'm really worried. I don't know whether I whether I can. I can do this, this PhD business. And he said, oh, sorry, you must, you're under a, 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 a delusion. We would never have taken you on if we hadn't thought yeah. you were capable of doing it. Well, why didn't they send me to tell me that at the beginning? <laughs> it's this idea that you have to, you know... But I can understand, nevertheless why when you're in an exam you shouldn't be told that you've passed the exam until yeah. it's actually over because you need you you're there to defend your thesis yeah you're ne you need to you don't necessarily need to think the worst that would be a mistake but what you need to be doing is is thinking constructively about how you defend it and so on and and if you're told that, well, you've already got it, and I go, well, oh, I don't care, I'll just say the next... You know, there, yeah. there, there could be that. There yeah. could be that kind of interpretation. As it was, it started... The virus started off very... It, it, it was very pleasant, and it was very good, and then gradually they started to ask the more difficult kind of questions until eventually, uh, you know, at, at the very end, uh, I think the virus lasted about... Two hours. Okay. And at the end, I was, um, I felt thoroughly depressed. <laughs> I really did. I felt that, that melancholia. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they'd found so many holes in it right. that I thought, oh, yeah. But they weren't holes that were that were going to stop it from being a PhD. Mm -hmm. They were they were areas for more for more research. They were areas where I might expand. They were areas that were, you know, really um, that I hadn't reached the full potential. One particular thing was that part of the very complicated philosophical 
theoretical arguments that were applying to the text were of such a nature that, that uh, in terms of the way that they were written, they were quite inaccessible. So instead of using the original sources like uh, Lacan and uh, Derrida and um, so on, I would use interpreters of Lacan and Derrida. Okay. And I got criticised for not using the original, original source. Mm. Because subsequently I can think of ways in which I might do it and still make my thesis accessible. But, yeah. but um, that, was, that was one thing that they canned me for, as it were. But nonetheless, it wasn't something that was going to you know, stop it from being publishable quality and so on. Yeah, yeah. So I mentioned then feeling depressed or melancholy at the end, but was it stressful throughout or was there a specific point which was... Well, no, it started off, it started off being, you know, before they arrived, I, I suppose yeah, I, I found it a bit stressful. And then when they arrived immediately, it wasn't stressful. And then yeah. it got increasingly more stressful until the end. Yeah. Okay. You've mentioned that they've, I guess, identified areas where you could have done things differently or expanded or so on. But in terms of the structure of the Viva, did you get the sense that they had a clear plan when they went in? That this was, that they had a specific... Specific points they were going to raise. Or? Uh, I think they had um, they had talked about it together. They'd had obviously meetings and discussions about it, and so they knew which role both of them were going to play, and, mm. and so on. And I think they they'd worked that out quite well. It was well structured from that perspective. But there was no break, right? Um, okay. That I can that I can remember, um, and I think that it would have been useful to have a break. Okay. I don't know whether we've mentioned it already or whether we talked about it just before, but your supervisor was in your viva. Um, yes. I, I'm, I'm assuming that they were sort of just observing and, and quiet yes. throughout, but did you have any sort of reflections afterwards? You know, what, what was their experience like? Do you know? I can't really remember. <coughs> I can't really remember much of that. Okay. And, um, I've been out of my out of touch with my supervisor for a number of years now, and I, I, I feel pretty guilty about that. I, I feel guilty about being out of touch with mine, actually, <laughs> uh, because they 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 should be, um, you know, their mentors, obviously. Mm. And uh, uh, my my supervisor was fantastic. Really. Yeah, he's a fantastic, and he's uh, and, and a terrific character as well. And um, so, from that perspective, I kind of miss him. Or, um, but. Because we've moved into sort of um, different areas, we're both still working in higher education, but um, we don't have anything yeah. in common, so I'm not really yeah. able to use his expertise or vice versa. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose one, one final question before we move away from the Bible then was, or rather is, with your supervisor in there, did, was there any extra... Um, pressure or stress because because he was there or was it I think it would have been forget? it would have been different if he hadn't been there yeah um, but then all because I was Will's first supervisee there was always an element that um, he was being apprenticed as well and so as a result of that we sort of carried that along. He was discovering things about supervising research students 
as I was discovering how to write a PhD. The external supervisor was Will's first supervisor. So okay. it was all quite incestuous, really. I'm <laughs> sure, and I'm sure Will won't mind me mentioning the fact that you know there were disagreements between the two supervisors. So, okay. but that, but we were all <laughs> we were all mature and sensible individuals, and and we would view such disagreements as being sort of positive but okay. sometimes it meant that I wasn't quite sure what was the right thing to uh, what was the right thing to do and you had great moments of discovery about the whole sort of process and the method not just of putting a PhD together but actually how you deal with a lot of kind of problems of dealing with complex writing projects for instance I said to my external once you know I haven't got time to do these two other novels of Vonnegut's in that particular time period that I was covering so um, how do I describe that in the thesis oh he said uh, just write a couple of sentences um, um, because of the time constraints we will not be di dis discussing this novel and that novel and that was it <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and I was thinking, well, this is the enormous hole in my PhD. But actually, you know, that, that's fine yeah. to just say that. So, yeah, and it, it's kind of revelations like that that sort of move you on in leaps and bounds. Sometimes it's it's one step forward and sort of it seems like two steps forward and one step back. But in an instance like that, it was like, you know, one step back and, and thirty steps forward because you. Or lots of other things yeah. fell into place when you yeah. were given that kind of that kind of feedback. So the um, the supervision process was was interesting. I mean, an external supervisor and an internal supervisor. Okay. And I went to see the external maybe three times a year um, at uh, Aberystwyth and stayed with him and his family. And that was okay. Lovely. So it's great. Excellent. Excellent. If we move forward in time, you. Well, you've just mentioned that you still are in academia, but not in in that subject or that discipline. Mm. So, um, so what do you do in academia then? What's your what's your role now? So, yeah, I'm head of PGR development at the University of Liverpool. Okay, and uh, and you've been doing that for how long now? I've been doing it for 13 years now. Okay. Well, can you describe a bit about what you what you do then? What's your what's your role in sort of in, well, in developing in PGRs? Well, I think what's interesting is how, um, for your listeners, <laughs> yeah. it's interesting to think about how I transferred my um, what I learned and researched in my PhD into mm -hmm. this particular role. So um, a lot of um, Vonnegut's work, for instance, was about the inadequacy of organizational structures the inadequacy of people to be um, um, machines basically in a um, in a in a political and social and industrial uh, society that often expects people to be machines so there's obvious that's an obvious theme in um, much of Vonnegut's fiction and then uh, it occurred to me through the inadequacies of the higher education PhD process that 
that was pretty much the same sort of analysis could be made. Right. And I decided probably towards the end of my PhD that I really didn't want to be a, um, uh, another academic. I might have been another academic, but I would certainly want to be a different kind of academic than the okay. one that I was encountering. Okay. And uh, in particular, I, um, I, I had a, uh, an interest in confrontation with my head of department, who, as soon as I'd finished my PhD, um, the, um, the, the prospects of any further teaching jobs just dried up. And they wouldn't fully explain the reason for that. And they were clearly embarrassed about it and didn't want to deal assertively with the situation. Okay. Which produces, always produces confusion in people if you won't tell them directly what the actual problem is. So you can imagine that's quite frustrating. Yeah. Um, especially when you're, um, you know, I was thinking, well, how am I going to support myself now? I'm going to get a job now. Yeah. And, um, and, and then I felt compelled to go down the line of applying for academic jobs, and I was interviewed for two academic jobs, and uh, I didn't get them, and um, I'm quite glad that I didn't as well. But, um, but then uh, the next job that I saw, which was about a year actually after I'd had my Viva, and I, I had been surviving on doing things like careers work, um, because this was obviously yeah. an interest, and I was asking questions of myself, well, I've had this higher education experience, what is higher education for? And to my astonishment, I would ask that question of my academic colleagues, and they, none of them knew. None right. of them knew what it was for. None of them had a, some of them had, a, well, they all had different answers, but um, none of them really knew what it was what it was for what they wanted the students to do and on all of this so all of this was intimately intimately related to employability and, and these kind of things so all of these were, were subjects that were dealt with in Vonnegut's fiction so here I was applying all of this to you know and I thought to myself well, what can I do that makes a difference and um, I saw um, advertised in um, the Guardian jobs, um, staff developer at University of Liverpool and um, postgraduate training coordinator, they call it. Yeah. I got interviewed for both jobs. And when I was being interviewed for the staff developer job, I was told that I'd got the postgraduate training coordinator job. Okay. Which was another way of saying, we don't want you to get the staff developer job, we want you to do the postgraduate <laughs> training coordinator right. job. Now, this was on the basis of um, my, you know, the stance that I was taking about my career in higher education and the fact that I'd been a postgraduate representative for the British Association of American Studies. So, this had given me a bit of experience with working with committees and someone in higher education and also gave me a, a breadth of knowledge of what it was like in other institutions mm -hmm. which was um, really quite interesting yeah I was also the only candidate that had rung up for the help you know there's a helpline isn't there with all of these job applications yeah. ring up if you want more information so I rang up for more information and I was the only one that did that and, um, I, think, well, I think there's a great tip for people who are uh, looking for jobs. Yeah, but it doesn't yeah. matter how many times you tell people that, they still won't do it. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, 
Paul Redmond, the um, head of careers here at Liverpool, there were, I think there were 12 other people who were heads of careers service around um, the UK were asked to, were applied for the job of head of careers at Liverpool. And Paul was the only one who really? rang up and <laughs> said, yeah, so it does show your enthusiasm for the, yeah. for the job. So when you see a job and you think, I could do that job, and that's really, that, that's how it seemed for me mm-hmm. when I saw the job and what was required. I, I just thought, you know, you, you need to have a, in order to be sure that you're going to do something and do something well, I think you've got to have um, a, a passion for it. Yeah. And my passion was that I wanted to change, you know, the academic culture that I'd encountered while I was doing my PhD. Okay. You've you had your your experience as a as a PhD researcher and you now work well directly with uh, PhD candidates, postgraduate researchers in thinking about their developments. So I think you're in a good position to answer the, the two final questions that I always ask at the end of uh, the podcast. Um, the first one being what advice would you give someone starting a PhD? And wh- one thing I'll mention now, I'm interested to see whether this is the same advice you gave me right. when I first met you uh, about nine years ago. Oh, crikey. What did I tell you all those years ago? Yeah. Um, it was a very practical suggestion, but... Uh, <coughs> really I was a, oh, jolly good. <laughs> yeah. Jolly good. Um... Um, yeah, I've probably forgotten what that advice is, but it, it, it must be along the lines um, of um, uh, following a uh, passionate commitment to what it is that you're researching. And if you're not, if you, if you can't find that, well, um, it's not impossible to um, get a PhD, but... Um, you need to have some so you need to be able to find some sort of drive that would enable you to do it because it it is far more difficult to get a phd than you think it is and there's a lot more involved than you think there are i mean if that if it wasn't like that then people wouldn't do a phd because yeah. it's that's what you're doing you're researching the the unknown and part of what you're researching is yourself and what you are capable of. So you have to recognise that um, it's you that is going to develop. You're, you're going to develop a, a, a text, a, a piece of research work <coughs> that's going to be um, considered to be at least you know, three years' worth of um, dedication. But it's you that uh, are really the... Um, the thing that is developed as a result of it. So you need to take yeah. advantage of all of the opportunities that are there um, and make some advantages for yourself um, because you, you won't have another chance to do it. Yeah, I, I, I can only echo that. The the piece of advice I remember you giving oh, yeah. me nine years ago, though, uh, the very practical suggestion of always making sure you have something to write on and write with. I remember you pulled oh, out right. a stack oh, of yes. index. You oh, ca- at okay. the time you carried... A, I yeah, the I, index I, cards yeah, thing. Yes. I always see you carrying a journal with you now. Yeah, in, yeah. in every yeah. situation, uh, you always know Richard by the journal. Yeah. Uh, well, our last question for the podcast then um, is, well, what advice would you give someone who was preparing for their viva? 
So at the other end of the spectrum there. Well, it's interesting because I'm going to be in a position where I'm going to be facilitating discussion for internal examiners now as to what they should be doing for um, facilitating the viva itself. And if I was a candidate, knowing what I know now and knowing what I've researched about the examination of PhD students and... Um, there isn't all that much research on it. The literature out there, there isn't all that, there isn't some great amount. You know, higher education isn't really very good at self-reflexivity, um, and some people even think it's bizarre to do such a thing. But what I would do is I would, um, I would have a checklist of things that I should be doing, things that the internal examiner should be doing, and questions that I would expect the external to be making. Okay. And I would also have a checklist of things that I would be hoping the university would do. And I would be hoping that that checklist somewhere or other, somehow or other, would be making sure that the experience that I received was going to be one that was um, quality, that was going to be memorable, that would be up to the job of getting me to realise that it was a rite of passage that I had experienced. Okay. And that um, it was going to, it would potentially be personally satisfying. Mm. And I think that's absolutely essential. Those are Not the, just for yeah. the candidate, but for institutions. So you'd, you'd like to see people going in there with the, this kind of expectation that it's going to be a, a satisfying... I wouldn't necessarily have that as an expectation, but okay. I would have said I would have done everything. I, I'd be assured that um, it was, I'd be assured by the appearances of the room in which it was going to take place, of the communications that had been passed to me, of the administration process itself, by the preparation that um, I'd been um, had been facilitated to me by my supervisors and by other support systems within the institution, I would I would be reassured by all of those kind of processes that um, I was, you know, I'd be looking. Would you look forward to a viva? Yeah, you should. You should be looking yeah. forward to a viva. I agree. It should be an expectation that this is going to be your chance to um, to shine with all of your work and, and so on. And I think that is a good point to finish on there. So thank you very much for sharing all that with us today, Richard. Um, it's a pleasure. That's all for episode 22. Many thanks to Richard for joining us today. Um, if you'd like to take part in a future podcast, please get in touch. Um, uh, at the time of recording it's March 2014 and there's been an almost nine month break in the podcast while I adjust to being a father um, so I'm looking forward to talking to many many more Viva survivors in the near future uh, if you'd like to be one of them then please get in touch either by tweeting at Viva Survivors leaving a comment on the site uh, viva-survivors.com or just emailing me at podcast at viva-survivors.com until next time, I'm Nathan Ryder, and thanks for listening.